So I'm pretty sure there's no one in the entire world who has not heard of a half-fish, half-human hybrid magical creature, most likely known as a mermaid. Now, it wasn't a mermaid, I don't think, but a few years ago during spring break, I was out deep-sea fishing with my grandpa, my dad, and a buddy of his. I don't know if it's because I was the only girl or if it's because I was of a certain age where I can hear certain noises or whatever, kind of like a mosquito ringtone thing. But at one point, we are so far off the coast, you can't see or hear anything. And I start hearing this really awesome violin playing. And it is so hypnotic and it's so soothing. I just, I just want to like jump out of the boat and go swim off and find it and just listen to it more. Well, something I noticed was when I was leaning on the edge of the boat, kind of chilling, I noticed that the music seemed to be coming from underwater. And I put my ear up right up into the water and it suddenly was a heck of a lot clearer. It was a violin being played underwater. And it was the coolest and the most frightening thing ever in my life. Apparently, almost every single religion has something kind of like um, a dangerous but mystical, magical, mysterious mer person. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. ...to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to thank all of you fantastic listeners back. I think you are all so special. If you were all little mermaids, I would tell you to stay under the sea with me because up on land they fry us and eat us in fricassee. That's right, you're not just another fish in the sea. No, no, no. You're pearls. You are regular old clam boogers, you all. Who doesn't love a clam booger? But anyway, you're very, very special to us, and we are so happy that you're all here. And if you would like to join this school of interesting fish. How many puns can we fit in the first minute of the show? Is that a challenge? No. <laughs> okay. Damn it. But we do want to thank everybody that's come back, that's left reviews and like ratings. Like salmon swimming upstream swimming against the current. You've come back to it. It is against the current. I'm so glad that grizzly bear didn't get you. Watch out. <laughs> Just kidding. He's a nice bear. His name's Fred. You think he's nice. He's nice to me. We do want to encourage all of you to come and join us on our social media pages such as facebook instagram and twitter all at just a story pod you can also check out our website just where you'll find lots of sources and information for the show and also find links to our merchandise store our merchandise store that's right ladies and gentlemen we sell things that's true and you can have them if you would like to go find that merchandise store we have t-shirts we have mugs 
monthly rotating designs. And if you would like to find another way to be a part of this fantastic operation, you can go to our Patreon page. The link is on our website and there you can become a sustaining member of the Just a Story pod community and help contribute to this madness. We are basically puns for hire. And we have another episode this week that was inspired by a call on the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. We have the Urban Legend Hotline. And if you would like to reach the Urban Legend Hotline, you can dial 512-222-3375. Please ask your parents before going online. Make sure you have the permission. If you're 18 years or younger, you should not call this number without an adult present. And if you do, that's okay. We won't tell anybody. Also, U.S. Virgin Islands, you may have to dial the number twice. Just kidding. That's fine. Shipping and handling extras. Accessories not included. Well, now we're doing the infomercial, and you can get two Ginzu knives to go with this. They cut through a tomato or a tin can. It's not a real word. Back to the story at hand. The story at Finn, Jacob. As we were talking about mermazing things. Oh, really? Mermazing, yes. We're going to be telling you all about mermaids, etc. this week. And so mermaids are something that has gone down in folklore as one of the most well-known mythical beings. I mean, one of the reasons, of course, that we talk about it now is the Little Mermaid movie. Wait, there was a movie? I'm just kidding. I think you've seen it. I've seen it like a bajillion times. I can basically sing it to you. Please don't. I might. But the stories of mermaids and similar mythical creatures have been around for millennia. And not only folk tales and folk stories, but sightings as well. Right. They are cryptids, right? Are they? Ish? Because they're people-y? I don't know. But people have definitely reported seeing mermaids for as long as they've been reporting anything. Right. And we can go to our old friend, Pliny the Elder. He's our old friend, Jacob. And he writes about nereids we'll talk about later women with rough scaly bodies like fish they're sitting upon dolphins or hippocamps so Pliny basically had heard of everything he was kind of like a greek benjamin franklin he just like had a little a little two cents on everything so it makes perfect sense to me that he would have recorded stories of mere people as they were and as we go through time we'll see more and more people so Pliny's kind of considered in a way like an old-fashioned scientist And so we have several other kind of scientific people examining these ideas of these mermaid-like creatures. In 1560, near the island of Mandir, some fishermen entrapped in their net seven mermen and mermaids. And so among these people were several Jesuits, and Father Enrique and Bosquez, physician to the Viceroy of Goa, were witnesses. And the physician examined them with a great deal of care, and even dissected them, asserting that the internal and external structure resembled that of human beings. What was it? A mermaid. Oh. Pay attention. I thought it was a merman. (laughs) Both. Okay. And so in the middle of the 13th century, there's a speculum regale, or the king's mirror, and it's written in Old Norse. So a translated version from several centuries later said, Like a woman as far down as her waist, long hands and soft hair, the neck and head in all respects, like those of a human being. The hands seem to be long and the fingers not to be pointed, but united into a web, like that on the feet of water birds. 
From the waist downward, this monster resembles a fish with scales, tail, and fins. This shows itself especially before heavy storms. The habit of this creature is to dive frequently and rise again to the surface with fishes in its hands. When the sailors see it playing with the fish or throwing them towards the ship, they fear that they are doomed to lose several of the crew. But when it casts the fish from the vessel, then the sailors take it as a good omen that they will not suffer loss in the impending storm. This monster has a very horrible face, with broad brow and piercing eyes, a wide mouth and double chin. I think I've read about these before, but I don't think they looked like pretty ladies. What do you mean? I remember reading about, like, when some research for some episode, it may have been an episode of Dime, like the little troll men, that they would have the little wooden troll men that looked like them, and they would show up wearing the yellow coats and stuff. Do they have fishtails? No, then they're not ladies either. They're just like little trolls that appear and like bring storms. And if you see one, you'll die. And that's why like everybody has little wooden trolls on the boats. Oh, but I mean, there are so many, you know, just omens of bad weather and bad signs. Right. And- There's nautical superstitions. We prob- can and probably will before it's all said and done be an entire episode. <laughs> but these are specific. You know, they're not little gnomes they're very much described in a manner relating to mermaids but not with that kind of beauty that's often Mm. associated with them right they are not sitting there combing their hair in the blue lagoon in uh neverland how could they with webbed fingers right and so several explorers have written about their sightings of mermaid-like creatures in 1389 the book eastern travels of john of hess is published with many perils during his voyage, and at one point he wrote, We came to a stony mountain where we heard sirens singing, mermaids who draw ships into danger by their songs. We saw their many horrible monsters and were in great fear. So I have a feeling his editor was like, dude, dude, this reads like a travelogue. We're going to need more. Spice it up. And so another explorer that you may have heard of, Christopher Columbus. I've heard of him. When he wasn't, you know, doing his whole genocide thing. Right, right. Was also hanging out watching the mermaids. And in his ship's journal on January 4th, 1493, he wrote about these mermaids they saw, saying they're not as beautiful as they are painted, although to some extent they have a human appearance in the face. To some extent, a human appearance in the face. I think that may be like... Okay, so you know in like old like Looney Tunes, that kind of thing, how if they were marooned on an island, like there would be two guys, like Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny would sit there and they would look at each other and they'd start to look like a chicken leg or a sandwich or whatever. And the like smell lines would come off of them. I think this is something that happens to sailors who have been at sea for a very long time without any ladies. I think they start seeing like a dolphin and being like, that thing kind of looks like a person, you know? Everything starts looking appetizing. In one way or another. Yeah, well, so Henry Hudson... I've heard of him, too. ...wrote in 1608 in his ship's journal about a experience from his crew while they were sailing through the Bering Sea. This morning, one of our company, looking overboard, saw a mermaid, and calling up some of the company to see her, one more came up, and by that time she was come close to the ship's side, looking earnestly on the men. A little while after a sea came and overturned her. From the navel upward, her back and breasts were like a woman's. As they say they saw her, her body as big as one of ours, her skin very white and long hair hanging down behind of color black. In her going down, they saw her tail, which was like the tail of a porpoise, and speckled like a mackerel. So this is secondhand. 
from his trusted crew. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm thinking about what Columbus said. Like, her face is somewhat like a person's, right? Okay. Almost human. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's always bothered me about mermaids. What's that? Noses. Why? They make no sense. I mean, you're right. <laughs> but what if they are like marine mammals? Then they need a blowhole. You need a blowhole. And maybe they have one. You're ruining the magic. Sorry. Noses. So many questions. It smells fishy to me, Jacob. Their noses smell no, fishy. No. We're going to pun it up on this episode. I'm so sorry. So two modernish accounts that are cited the most are the Columbus story. And then the other is by one John Smith. Which John Smith? There are a few. The one that's in the other Disney movie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've heard of him. Mel Gibson. He doesn't like Jews. Well. But you mean the other, other John Smith, not Mel Gibson. The real one. Okay, yes. Tell me, tell me more. So if you're reading accounts of mermaid sightings, you will inevitably come across this John Smith quote that in 1614 while he was in the west indies he wrote that he saw a mermaid Mm -hmm. saying the upper part of her body perfectly resembles that of a woman and she was swimming about with all possible grace near the shore it had large eyes rather too round a finely shaped nose a little too short and well-formed ears rather too long and her long green hair imparted to her an original character by no means unattractive So, I know what the problem is. He's not a John Smith. He's a wordsmith. This is lovely writing. It is. But also, he's very critical, right? Like, your nose is a little too short. Your ears are... on everything. Like, too short for what? And according to whom? I want to know. But whatever. I assume you're just reeking of white privilege and trying to export it to the rest of the world. Okay. Boy, does he. But the thing is that he was not in the West Indies at this time. Then how did he see a mermaid in the West Indies? Well... I mean, he may have, (laughs) but this writing is not from John Smith. Is there, is it another Disney movie? It could be. It's first referenced in a 19th century newspaper, the Gazette of the Union, and an article from September 29th, 1849 that recounts the story, sets it in 1911, but you know, it doesn't put Smith's words in quotes, just tells a story about this famous Captain John Smith. So, this story written by Alexander Dumas. Oh. Oh, so yeah, the guy that wrote the one with Mickey and the other musketeers. No. The three musketeers, yes. The man in the iron mask and the Count of Monte Cristo. Yes, okay. Got it. He wrote, Captain John Smith, an Englishman, saw in 1611, off the island in the West Indies, a siren, with the upper part of the body perfectly resembling a woman. And then he recounts the very detailed and... Kind of critical description of the mermaid, but then says, Unfortunately, the beautiful swimmer made a slip, and Captain Smith, who had already begun to experience the first effects of love, discovered from below the stomach. The woman gave way to the fish. It is true that this fish had a double tail, but two tails are not exactly calculated to make amends for two legs. I'm sorry, but below the waist, the woman gave way to the fish. Alas, sounds like the worst stand-up comedian of the revolutionary era joke I've ever heard. Now, in the 16th century, the writer and cartographer, Olus Magnus, who did the famous Carta Marina, which is the 
map of Scandinavia with all the monsters around it and mm. cataloging all the monsters. And he warns the fishermen about the mermaids who, if you do not presently let them go, such a cruel tempest will arise and such a horrid lamentation of that sort of men comes with it and of some other monsters joining with them that you would think the sky should fall. So you catch a mermaid. She's not going to be happy. She's going to go all storm up in there, and then she's going to call in the rest of her goons and really raise hell. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let the mermaid go. Good advice. It is good advice. And here's a, a story that counter is a kind of counterpoint to that. In 1403, John Swan wrote The Speculum Mundi, and in it he is writing about a history of the Netherlands that he has read about a sea woman who is taken up in their straits of broken dike near to the towns of Kempen and Idum, brought thither by a sea, tempest and high tide, were floating up and down and not finding a passage out again, by reason that the breach was stopped after the flood, was espied by certain women and their servants as they went to milk their kine in the neighboring pastures, who at the first were afraid of her, but seeing her often, they resolved to take her, which they did, and bringing her home, she suffered herself to be clothed, fed with bread, milk, and other meats, and would often strive to steal again to the sea. But being carefully watched, she could not. Moreover, she learned to spin and perform other small offices of women. But at the first day, they cleansed her of her sea, moss, which should stick around her. She was taught to kneel down with her before the crucifix, never spoke, but lived dumb and continued alive, as some say, 15 years. And then she died. And then he cites, This is credibly reported by the author of that history, by the writer of the Chronicles of Holland, and in a book called The Theater of Cities. They took her in the year of our Lord, 1403. So they got themselves a mermaid, and she couldn't talk, and she was always trying to get back to the sea. Right? There are definitely some parallels there to our wild boy feral kids kind mm -hmm. of stuff yes that's true so those seem like very antiquarian stories it doesn't seem like there are places where there still are mermaids oh well of course there are oh tell me i like to be wrong about this sort of thing <laughs> so a, a little more recent account from 1830 is this mermaid that was captured in scotland and this story was collected by a folklorist in 1900 alexander carmichael and he said he was getting first-hand accounts. All these people said they'd seen this mermaid, they touched it with their own hands. Don't touch a mermaid. It just seems like bad form. The townspeople are cutting seaweed when they hear a splash in the calm sea. Looking up, she saw a creature in the form of a woman in the miniature, some few feet away. Alarmed, the woman called to her friends, and all the people pre present rushed to this place. The creature made somersaults and turned about in various directions. Some men waded into the water to seize her, but she moved beyond their reach. Some boys threw stones at her. Because they were nice. And one of which struck her in the back. Oh, they were sweet, sweet boys. And so a few days later, the strange creature washed up to shore. Because she'd been killed by a rock. Most likely. And the boy was put on trial for murder. And the, he was a mer-murderer. But they did, were able to describe this small mermaid about the size of a child, but had abnormally developed breasts. Of course she did. The lower part of the body was like a salmon, but mm. without scales. But crowds of people came to see her, and eventually they decided to bury her. They had a coffin built and a shroud made for the mermaid. 
and the body was buried in the presence of many people a short distance above the shore where it was found. That's oddly tolerant and nice for 1830, though I will say I think a burial at sea might have been more appropriate. I want to see a mermaid. Okay. I want to see a mermaid. Where can I see a mermaid? Right now? Well, yes. (laughs) We could go to Japan. Cool. (laughs) They're big in Japan. They are. So Japanese mermaids are a little different than the kind of more European idea of mermaids. They're called a ningyo, and they're often depicted as these pointy-toothed little monsters, some sporting claws or horns. Now, according to legend, in 1222, a mermaid washed ashore in Hakata Bay on the Japanese island of Kyushu. And after a shaman declared the mermaid a good omen for the nation, its bones were then buried at the Yukimoto Temple, which people took to calling the Palace of the Dragon God. That's kind of badass. Now, during the Edo period, between 1772 and 1781, the bones of the temple's mermaid were removed from the resting place. That seems like a really bad idea. And visitors to the temple were able to partake of water in which the mermaid's bones had been soaked. It seems like it would give you superpowers. There's only one way to find out. Mm. Let's go. I love this. One reporter was speaking to Yoshihito Wakai, the vice director of an aquarium in Japan, asking if he thought these were really mermaid bones. Mm-hmm. He said, I cannot say anything definitively. I think it's better to keep a legend a legend. So that means, I guess, there's never been testing or anything done on the bones. No. Good. They're centuries old. Good. I think it's fine. Now, there's also another mermaid shrine in Japan near Mount Fuji. And there they have a mermaid mummy. What? That is supposed to be over 1,400 years old. Now, according to folk tales, the mermaid was once a fisherman. And he was transformed into a beast because he deigned to fish in protected waters. The punishment made the mermaid see the error of its ways. And it asked a prince to display its remains to serve as a lesson and a warning to others. I'm not going to say it's a gaffe. I'm not going to say it's a gaffe. But you know it is a gaffe. What's a gaffe? You know. Oh, the original gaffe. The best gaffe. The gaffe. The Fiji mermaid. The Fiji mermaid. Okay, wait. Now I have a thought. I have a thought before we continue. Yes. I wonder if it was supposed to be a Fuji mermaid. Because these are. this is a Fuji mermaid mummy. And it's a mermaid mummy. Right. And the thing about the... Fiji Mermaid, which we've talked about. On the Welcome to the Audio Dime Museum episode. Right, which is a classic dime museum gaffe of a mermaid mummy, which is a combination of a fish and a monkey that are sewn together. And they were originally sold by Japanese craftsmen, especially to European explorers. So yeah, I think it may have been a, a lost in translation moment, and it's not a Fiji mermaid, it's a Fuji mermaid. Well, Barnum was like, what sounds oriental? <laughs> yes, he was. He was like that. Which, by the way, I'm so excited for that Hugh Jackman movie. Oh, it's going to be so good. I could die. It's going to be a musical. Shut the front door. So our friend P.T. Barnum shows up with the Fiji mermaid in 1842. Look what I found here. It's a Fiji mermaid. Fuji. Fiji mermaid. (laughs) Just say it enough times until it's right. And the New York Sun, writing their supporting review of it, said, We've seen it. What? Why that mermaid? The mischief you have. Where? What is it? It's twin sister to the ducidest looking thing imaginable. Half fish, 
half flesh, and taken by and large the most odd of all oddities earth or sea has ever produced. There's so many exclamation points in that. You know what I think about exclamation points? It's like laughing at yourself. Which I do. I should love them. They irritate me. You do have to remember that this is before CGI. We take for granted what a what a spectacle that must have been. Half fish, half flesh, you and your wordplay. Now, of course, Barnum and his autobiography. It's like called The Art of the Deal or something. No, but I really do think he would be elected president if he were alive today. But he recounts going to a naturalist to ascertain the, quote, genuineness of the animal. And the naturalist tells him that he cannot conceive of how it was manufactured, for he never knew a monkey with such peculiar teeth, arms, and hands, nor had he knowledge of a fish with such peculiar fins. And Barnum wrote, Then why do you suppose it's manufactured? He replied, Because I don't believe in mermaids. (laughs) So Barnum said, That's no reason at all, and therefore I'll believe in the mermaid and hire it. And so he, of course, showed it in his fabulous museum. And hired it. And made a boatload of money. I don't believe in platypus. I guess stranger things have and were at the time happening. So who did believe in mermaids? Everyone. 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 Okay. So for the sake of argument, let's take them back to the realm of myth and out of the dime museum. What are some of the the origin stories or the like mythological origins of the mermaid. Well, so there are so many. Let's go through a bunch of them. Yay! Now, one of the oldest depictions of a mermaid-like creature is Atargatis, who was a Syrian goddess. She was kind of like a fertility goddess. And one day, whenever she fell in love with a youth and became by him the mother of a child and was so in shame of this that she threw herself into the lake and her body was changed into the form of a fish, though her head remained human. Mm. And in her temples, they would have sacred fish ponds. Cool. Okay, so I'm digging her ponds, her fish ponds. That seems like a really cool thing to have in a temple. So who's next? Well, so one thing you see in a lot of these old writings that we kind of went through is that mermaids are also frequently called sirens. I've heard of those. They sing. Okay, so this is the Odyssey. Yes. Homer, blind, doesn't use the word blue. Yeah. Okay. And he is writing about, you know, them trying to get home, which is kind of like the crux of the story. Yeah, it's like the original road trip movie. Right. Exactly. And so they faced all these other perils, and he sees an ad somewhere for a new act (laughs) or something. I think he talks to a prophetess. (laughs) Okay, same thing. She knows where all the cool bands are playing. Very indie. Very hip. And she tells him about this really underground thing. (laughs) Well, it's above ground. Above sea level? It's an island. Right? But the sirens are there. Yes. And their singing will drive you mad. But it's very beautiful, very enchanting. And he wants to hear it. And he decides that he can hear it, but nobody else can because... You've probably never heard of them. Yeah, he wants to be the first. Wants to be the only. And so he has all of the other men stop up their ears, and he is bound to the mast of the ship. This is going to allow him to hear the siren song. But through the course of sailing by the sirens, he goes kind of ballistic, demanding that he be set free so that he can go to them. And the other men have to, like, fight him, and he hold him down, and eventually they make it past, and all is well. And, and things. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, right. So, 
Odysseus does come in contact with the sirens, and it's probably the most famous depiction of the sirens. Very vivid. And so there is another depiction of sirens with Jason and the Argonauts. How does he fare? Oh, he fares very well, because he has a secret weapon. What's that? Orpheus. Dueling banjos, you say? Yes. I see your sirens, and I raise you this dude. They're coming near the island of the sirens. Saying at one time they had been handmaids to Demeter's gallant daughter Persephone, before she was married, and sung to her in chorus. But now, half human and half bird in form. What birds? Mm -hmm. They spent their time watching for ships from a height that overlooked their excellent harbor, and many a traveler reduced by them to skin and bones had forfeited the happiness of reaching home. The sirens, hoping to add the Argonauts to these, made haste to greet them with a liquid melody, and the young men would soon have cast their housers on the beach if Orpheus had not intervened, raising his lyre... He drew from it the lively tune of a fast-moving song, so as to din their ear with a medley of competing sounds. The girlish voices were defeated by the lure, and the set wind, aided by the sounding backwash from the shore, carried the ship off. Now one man, who had a little more keen ears than anyone else, was tempted and did jump off the ship. But Aphrodite had pity on him and saved him. Yay! Wow, they really made out well. I, like... I have this vision of him like holding the leer like a and like striking like the power stance yes. like you know like coming out and like the lighting behind him is very like hair metal arena rock and I mean Orpheus is like the king of death metal absolutely literally okay wait 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 but one thing before we move on birds what about them why are they birds because they're half birds birds are not mermaids you're right bird maids. No, they're just half bird, half human. They're not mermaids at all. Okay. But harpies. Harpies are like that. Right. They're more like harpies. Shrill. So as it was noted, they were formerly handmaidens of the goddess Persephone. And when she was stolen away by Hades, Demeter gave them the bodies of birds to assist in their search. And they eventually had to give up on the search and settled on the flowery island that they called home. That's Ovid's version of the story. I believe Ovid. Sure. Ah, but other more fun versions. Okay. This also occurred because of a punishment from Demeter for not helping find Persephone. Failing in their task. Or from Aphrodite because they wished to remain virgins. So Aphrodite had never heard of a colloca. Doesn't count. Colloca was included in the anything but. (laughs) It's an everything but. No. (laughs) (laughs) So sometime in the Middle Ages... How does a bird turn into a fish? It sounds like a Lewis Carroll riddle. It does. It's possibly through mistranslation. Uh-huh. Possibly through amalgamation. Uh-huh. Sirens began to be depicted with fishtails. Because the sea. Maybe. I mean, it, it seems like, oh, well, they torture sailors, so clearly they're in the water. Yeah, I mean, that could be some of it. It really good. And, you know, of course, the words for mermaid-like... Creatures in Spanish, French, Italian, Polish, Romanian, Portuguese are all some form of the word siren. Mm-hmm. And so in a 13th century bestiary by Guillaume Leclerc, he describes these sirens as a monster of strange fashion. For from the waist up, it is the most beautiful thing in the world, formed in the shape of a woman. The rest of the body is like a fish or a bird. So sweetly and beautifully does she sing that they who go sailing over the seas... As soon as they hear the song, cannot keep from going toward her. 
And some of the illustrations even have them have a fish tail and wings. I mean, I guess why not? As long as we're sticking animal parts on people to make them more interesting. Meh. And one great little line from an early Christian humorist. That's a thing. We talked about the humorists of the day. They are people that think that all mythology is based in some sort of real story. Ah. And so Isadora's etymology states, The Greeks imagined that they were three sirens, part virgins, part birds, with wings and claws. One of them sang, another played the flute, the third the lyre. They drew sailors, decoyed by song, to shipwreck. But according to the truth, however... The truth. You have a, a, a capital T truth here, sir. Mm-hmm. You've interviewed him, I see. Oh, definitely. They were prostitutes who oh, led travelers down to poverty and were said to impose shipwreck on them. They had wings and claws because love flies and wounds. They are said to have stayed in the waves because a wave created Venus. Okay, I'm actually, now that I think of it, not having a hard time imagining that the sirens are a metaphor for venereal disease. You think so? Think about it. Nah. Well, if you hear their song, you go mad. It's like syphilis. It takes like 20 years to go mad from syphilis. We don't know that they had the same concept of time and myth. Slow burn sirens. First you get the burn. Well, I mean, if you're 40 and it comes up, you're going to blame it on the last prostitute. Not the one you saw when you were 20. Maybe so. I'm, I'm just saying. I can see. Maybe it's a, maybe it's all a metaphor for venereal disease. Maybe the entire odyssey is. We need to look at this. No. No, we will not. We will not <laughs> be doing that. Do not worry, listeners. But there were sightings of... Venereal disease. Mermaids. Same thing. <laughs> In, like, Greek-Roman area, the 2nd century Greek writer Pausanias wrote that they are quite a sight, mm. but the one he'd seen would really make you gasp. He saw a merman preserved in Rome, but had been more impressed with the one he had seen in Greece. He described it as slick hair was the color of frogs in a stagnant pond, upper body covered with fine scaled gills visible beneath its ears, and the fish-like mouth was studded with large, sharp teeth. Greenish gray eyes, shell encrusted fingernails, and almost human nose and a scaly dolphin tail. Do dolphins have scaly tails? Of course not. Huh. What was it? <laughs> what do you see? We're not talking about what they are yet. <laughs> Hold your hippocamps. <laughs> so, one possibility for why sirens began to be more mermaid like is that they started to become conflated with Triton and with. Nerids. Triton, I am familiar with. Triton was almost played by Patrick Stewart. What? <laughs> in Little Mermaid. It's a Disney movie. <laughs> I know that. I'm just telling you because I think that fact is amazing. Also, Be Motherfucking Author almost played Ursula. I don't know if that would have done. Are you serious? She would have been epically amazing. Whoop, back to reality? No. Nah. No. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> not at all. Back to the back to not that Triton. Triton was a one person. It was it was a proper noun, right? Right. He was a kind of messenger to Poseidon. He was his son. He was usually depicted a very like merman like depiction. Merman father. Yes. Merman. Okay. So just kind of like fishy on the bottom, hot dude on the top. Exactly. And one tale was a fish tale. Had that a Triton had been menacing bathing women and fishermen and was eventually trapped with a bucket of wine set on a beach. Because when he was in his drunken stupor, they went and killed it. No! 
But in Greek mythology, he is like kind of a messenger of Poseidon mm-hmm. and very merman like. But the Nereids were the daughters of Nereus. Okay, so Nereus is sort of almost like an elemental, right? Like he is up there with Gaia. He is the son of Gaia. Okay, so he's pre-Olympian. Right, and so he's the kind of old man of the sea. Not uh, Ernest Hemingway. No. And also kind of aligned with Proteus, another kind of early god. And he is kind of replaced whenever Zeus defeats Cronus. Okay, so he just has to like hang out with his 50 daughters. Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of like the dude in Game of Thrones in the north with all the daughters. Is it like that, or are they happy? They're happy. Okay, so not like that. (laughs) The opposite. Okay. So the Nereids were actually usually kind of a positive thing in Greek mythology. They usually represented more positive aspects of the sea. It's a life-giving power. Yes, they were even worshipped, especially in like little port towns. Mm -hmm. And so they are also... Featured in Jason and the Argonauts. Got around. What did they do? No, the other ones were sirens. I meant Jason got around? Oh, he did. All the half ladies. All the parts that weren't people. But in one part, they are helped. The Argonauts are helped. Yes. By all of the narrates Mm -hmm. past the wandering rocks, which were known to destroy ships and sailors. Right, because they wandered. Yeah. The Nereids, swimming in from all directions, met them here, and Lady Thetis, coming up astern, laid her hand on the blade of the steering oar to guide them through the wandering rocks. While she played the steersman's part, nymph after nymph kept leaping from the sea and swimming around the Argo, like a school of dolphins gamboiling around a moving ship in sunny weather, much to the entertainment of the crew as they see them darting up, now aft, now ahead, and now abeam. But just as they were about to strike the rocks, the sea nymphs, holding their skirts up over their white knees, began to run along on top of the reefs and breaking waves following each other at intervals on either side of the ship. The Argo, caught in the current, was tossed to right and left. Angry seas arose up all around her and crashed down the rocks, which at one moment soared into the air like peaks, and at the next, sticking fast to the bottom of the sea, were submerged by the raging waters. But the Nereids, passing the ship from hand to hand and side to side, kept her scuttling through the air on top of the waves. Yeah, they sound like very happy like sprightly almost and helpful and helpful a lot of times mermaids bitches come up with the storm come up with the tempest fish bitches god but these these girls sound lovely and also what business do they have with knees where are their tails when do we get some people with freaking tails we've got one tail so far and it's on a dude well so they are shapeshifters okay they have like their father the ability to shapeshift and so Neris was often shape-shifting, and he'd fight Hercules, and, you know, because Hercules fought Just everybody. Fought everybody, yeah. He's that guy at the bar. But now Thetis, who was mentioned in the Argos story, was the eldest daughter, and one time she used her shape-shifting abilities to avoid the embrace of the mortal, Peleus. Uh-huh. Now she transformed herself into fire, water, wind, a tree, a bird, a tiger, a lion, a servant, and finally a cuttlefish. I want to be a cuttlefish so bad. Are you sure? Because that's when he was finally able to seize her. That's a lie. Cuttlefish are the trickiest bastards in the world. Once well, so since she was captured, she assumed human form and they were married. Uh-huh. And then they had a son. 
Achilles. <gasps> oh. Her magic plan, like, were always very close to working, weren't they? <laughs> she just dipped that baby twice. Oop, I think I missed a spot. And they are often tied with, like, dolphins, and you see that frequently, such as the story of when King Minos was talking to Theseus, who was the son of Poseidon, uh-huh. and he didn't buy it. That he was Poseidon's son. He was like, you're lying to me. Prove it, bitch. And he said, I, I will. So Minos took his ring and threw it into the sea. Prove it. Boom. I, I'll get your ring. There's Theseus dives in and was brought by the dolphins to the court of the Nereids, who gifted him with a golden crown as proof of his divine heritage. Minos must have been like, fuck. This is not going to work out well for me. He always has bad ideas, though. No, he really, like, not not somebody you want on your brainstorming team. Get him out of the think tank now. It's like, we can make a maze? No, no maze. I have a great idea, guys. Daedalus is like, hey, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Want to see what I made? And Minos is like, yes, I do, but I don't want you to show anyone else, so into the tower forever with you. Again, worked out well for all involved. Mm Mm-hmm. Marketing by Minos. By Minos. So there is really this tie to dolphins, and the Greeks and Romans often called dolphins the people of the sea. The tuna of the sea. What? No. The chicken of the sea. Samantha. (laughs) The people of the sea. Okay. Now I've got it. Why do they call them the people of the sea? Well, let's take it from a non-mythological standpoint. Why do you think? Because they're super smart. They are very social. And they, like, take care of their young, and they seem like they communicate a lot. And they're always coming up to the surface, so you see them. We've got a lot of FaceTime with the dolphin. I mean, they're very, you know, human-like characteristics. I mean, they're mammals. There's that. And they don't see... They're not scaly. Well, the mammal thing is important because they knew that they would have live young. Uh And so that really did tie them more to people. Now, of course, there's a mythological origin of this. So one day, Dionysus, the cool guy, was traveling in disguise on board of a pirate ship when the sailors decided that instead of delivering their passengers safely home, they would just, you know, sell them into slavery instead. Mm, good guys. Good guys. So Dionysus... This <laughs> party gone wrong. Like, gives them a hella bad trip and drives the crew mad with hallucinations <laughs> and they all jump into the sea. Now... Once they realize the error of their ways, they repent, and Dionysus relents and turns them into dolphins. Which is better than death. I would think so. I think dolphins look like they're having a fine old time. So this myth is often said as a reason why Greeks would not really kill dolphins, and it was seen as like an appalling thing, because they were once human, and they retained these human characteristics. Uh Uh-huh. The Greek poet Opalan, in his treatise on natural history, said the hunting of dolphins is immoral, and whoever willingly devises destruction for dolphins can no more draw nigh the gods as a welcome sacrificer, nor touch their altars with clean hands, but pollutes those who share the same roof with him. Those are very stern words. So, somewhere in just the miasma of mythology and folklore, whether it be through mistranslation bored writers artists with flair yeah then the sirens nereids tritons dolphins all got kind of mishmashed into 
these kind of ideas of mermaids that are depicted in medieval bestiaries in like the 13th century. So that's when we start getting the lady with the tail. Oh no, they existed beforehand. While there are, remember the nereids were shapeshifters; they could change form. So could they was, have change form. Yeah, like a change. If you can change form, you could change form. Cool. So no, they were definitely depicted as half woman, half fish, plenty of times in ancient okay. Greek art. They were fond of just sticking animal pieces on things, you know. Like old Minos worked out so well for him. Don't fly the black flag. So he talked a little bit about dolphins. We talked a little bit about birds, and we talked a little bit about fish, but I feel that we are neglecting a noble, noble family of the marine kingdom. And what is that? The pinnipeds. Pinnipeds? The favorite. finest of all the peds. Even better than bipeds? Better than bipeds. The pinniped. I do love a pinniped. What is a pinniped, you may say? I would say it was a seal. (laughs) Or a walrus. Or a sea lion. Can be so many things. But the seal, the seal is the one I really want to talk about today, because I want to talk about selkies. Selkie is actually kind of just like an Orkney word for seal. Orkneys are little tiny islands above the UK, hanging out, and their word for gray seal is selkie. But there's more to it than that, because that would be boring, and I wouldn't just tell you that. So they're also called roan in Ireland, because roan in Ireland is the word for seal. Very creative naming. Seems we're talking about seals. We are talking about seals, but there's more to it than that. They're seal-like, at least. They have removable skin. Selkies have removable skin. Yes. So what do they look like when they're wearing their skin? Seals. What do they look like when they take their skin off? People. Okay. I'm on board. That's the crooks of it. So they take off the skin and they can become human or human-looking, and they go on to the beaches, usually more than once a year. That's the bare minimum. In order to dance, bask, do other fun things that one does on the land. When someone said, what would I pay to spend a day warm on the sand? They said, my seal skin, clearly. And so they go, they bask. And the males have a propensity for having many, many amorous affairs with mortal human ladies. And there are a lot of babies born from selkie men, I believe may in fact be mailmen or milkmen or things of that nature. They are the, the men who things are blamed on, the selkie men. And they're said to be quite handsome. Lots of post-twilight erotic fiction written about male selkies, I found when I went to research this. Oh, titillating. It's not. <laughs> it's weird. Couldn't get into it. I mean, just the smell. They talk about it like it's a good thing. It's like Kramer. <laughs> Lua Denima. No. Oh. His cologne, the beach. <laughs> now, sometimes they'd be blamed for sinking boats of sealers, specifically. So people who were going to kill them, right? Seems fair. They're mostly found on the Orkney and Shetland Islands. And they're also found in Ireland and Scotland and the Faroe Islands. And to some extent, they're present in Iceland and Norway, but the stories are a little different there. And some people believe that this may have its feet in this idea of a pre-Christian taboo that forbade the harming of seals because they're an important totem animal to the Celts. That's an interesting idea. I like it. So let's get to some narrative now that we have basics defined, right? right, We got a seal, takes its skin off, becomes a hunky dude. Or a pretty lady. A la Edward. Or a pretty lady. Mm -hmm. And of course they have beautiful dark eyes. 
and well-farmed breasts. Well, they don't say that, but... Oh, I'll... I bet there's it. <laughs> I bet there's citation. Like, everything I read about mermaids talked about it. Oh, by the way, you're a grieving fisherman's wife. Prime selkie target? You are, but you have to go to the sea and shed seven tears into the sea, and then a selkie man will come comfort you. And you'll get a hunky selkie? Yeah. Oh, I'm writing this book. <laughs> Let's get on this. So more narrative. Even more narrative. In Orkney, there's a famous ballad called The Great Selkie of Sewell Scary. It's a child's ballad. Not for children. <laughs> no. And it's based on the love between a girl and a seal man from Shetland, from Brecon and Yell. There's a story of a boy with a seal's head born to an unfortunate woman who fell asleep on the beach. And then according to Ellen Buford, stories about affairs between seal men and human women are unique to the Northern Isles. Clearly, they've got good seals. Now, in addition to the seal-headed baby being born, which that is unfortunate. Sorry that happened, lady. You shouldn't be such a sound sleeper. Not victim blaming. Don't victim blame this person. For their selkie love. There are a lot of interesting ideas about their sort of allegiance or reverence for children and their own pups. And so there were stories about how people's lambs would be taken if they harmed seal pups. Like the selkies would come in the night and steal your the lambs, take them to the sea and drown them. Fair. Fair. Seems fair. Fair. Yeah. So, I mean, we're having half seal babies. What, what is this? Some. Sometimes, yes. Now, according to Walter Trial Jennison, who is the preeminent Orkney selkie man, he is the guy, not, he's not a selkie man. He knows the most about You the think s- he's not? How's he know so much? Is he hunky? No. Was he hunky? He's a folklorist. Maybe he's a walrus selkie. <laughs> Those exist, but only in Iceland. Okay, so according to Dennison, who is going to talk a whole bunch through this, he says that there are allegedly true stories in the 19th century from one family in the North Isles of Orkney whose children were born with selkie paws or webbed feet and fingers. Which is, of course, something that happens very frequently. And at each birth, the midwife desperately clipped away these webs, but to no avail, they always grew back. And that doesn't happen. Well, not really. And then there's also a really important, like, key story that I don't find that interesting. But I think it has a lot of telling root that we're going to need as we flesh out our Selkie tree. So this is the Selkie that did not forget. And it's an Orkney story. Sounds like a wrathful Selkie. It's not. Not yet. We'll get there. So there's a fisherman and he comes on shore and he hears this awful crying. And he goes and he sees a seal mother pupping, having her her pups. And... He decides that those pups look like they would make a lovely waistcoat because he is a monster. And so he's going to get the pups and he scoops them up and the mother starts flipping out and she's like beating herself with her paws and howling at him and like, like throwing herself in the water and splashing and just making this huge spectacle. And she finally comes right up to him and she starts crying tears. Like crocodile tears? Like crocodile tears, but seal tears. And their eyes already look so sad, you know it was heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, a little Sarah McLaughlin over that? Oh, yes. And so his heart is moved, and he gives her her pups back because of this display of emotion and, like, how connected he feels with her. The arms of the angels. Yeah, so he hands her her seal pups, and she and her seal pups go into the ocean and live happily for many a year. Now, years later, the fisherman is out on his boat, and a big storm comes up, and he falls into the very cold water, 
and he's not able to get to land and he's floundering and he's wishing he had that waistcoat literally in every story I've ever seen. The one he didn't make out of the seal pups. He's drowning and death is upon him and suddenly he feels a tug on his clothes and a big gray old seal has come to his rescue. Selkie Mama? Selkie Mama pulls him to land, saves him, looks at him. They make eye contact. They have a moment. Imagine the song plays again. Definitely. And this, the story ends, the Selkie did not forget. It's a fun story. It's, it's a sweet. nice story. It's, it's sweet. It's very sweet. But no one turns into anything. But it's still called a Selkie. It's well, like assumed because of her human characteristics. Well, Selkie, like I said, it's just oh, the word seal. for... Yeah. You're right. Yeah. She just remembered. So she has like a human memory, human emotions. And I think it's sort of like it's an important step in this evolution. Now, the problem with Selkies. Selkie women have a really hard lot in life, in folk life, it seems to me. Besides everyone trying to kill their pups. Yes. So in many of the more modern tellings of Selkie stories, there's like this bittersweet ending. And it usually involves a female Selkie who's captured by a fisherman of some type who sees her, falls in love. He takes her skin and says he's going to hang on to it until she can learn to love him too. That's how that works. Right? So... After a few years, Stockholm Syndrome kind of sets in, and she likes him well enough, but she really misses, you know, her entire life and family that she knew until the day he stole her selkie skin, and they may have had children. They usually do have children, and the kids, like, notice that she gets all, like, sad and looks at the sea a lot, and they're like, what can we do, Mom? And she's like, by the way, I'm actually a selkie, and I miss everyone I've ever known, and the kids usually make some generous gesture of like finding the seal skin and allowing her to return home. And then they live happily because they know that she's happy, even though they miss her. So it's like these like sweet little endings where the kids like send her on her way. Sweet ending. Terrible beginning. It's this is a pretty terrible ending too. Cause they're still without a mom and that's sad, but she, what, can visit. she doesn't though. It's never implied that she dies. They're fine. But, like, in the original versions, it's a lot more twisted, which is, you know, to be expected. And that's evident in the story. It's also, like, popular in the Orkney Islands. The Goodman of Wasteness. And it's about this man who's the Goodman, who's handsome, well-to-do, young, strong, well-liked, and the proprietor of a profitable farm. Check out his eHarmony profile. You and farmers only? Dot com. Yes. So he's not interested in marriage, unfortunately. And this makes the young woman of the community resent him and refer to him as an old young man and old before his time. He was committing the unforgivable sin of celibacy in their eyes. And when he was asked why he would not take a wife, he would say, Women are like many other things in this weary world. Only sent as a trial to men who have enough trials. Without being tried by a wife, that old fool Adam may not have been bewitched by his wife, and he might still be in the Garden of Eden even to this day. Sick burn. So, of course, he says this in a tavern because it's where you say things like this. And of course, of course, of course, who overhears him but a witchy old woman. A gypsy. Basically. And she tells him, you better watch your mouth because you may be bewitched too one day. He says, okay, sure I will, you crazy old witchy woman. Ha 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 ha. But one day, He's out walking down by the seashore, and he comes upon some selkie folk. 
Some naked ladies? Read naked ladies. And they're hanging out on a flat rock, sunning themselves, being naked and ladylike. Bewitching. Bewitching, beguiling beauties, these things. And their seal skins are strewn about carelessly. So he runs at full speed and manages to capture the seal skin of the slowest maiden. But she was hot, even if she was slow. And the story says they silky folks swam out a little distance and turned their gaze mournfully at the goodman. He stared back and realized that all save one had taken the shape of seals. Grinning, he put the captured seal skin under his arm, and whistling a merry tune, he set out for home. Bastard. Whistling! Motherfucker's whistling! <laughs> so the seals were sad, and they had to leave the slow seal maiden. And as he's whistling to himself, he notices he's being followed by a weeping, wailing woman. I think he knew. I think he knew the whole time he was whistling that he was being followed and he was just ignoring her because he's a dick. Playing hard to get. Right. And she was a pitiful sight and she was sobbing and howling in grief, holding her arms out and pleading to have her skin back. She begged, oh, handsome man, if there is any mercy in your human breast, give me back my seal skin. I cannot live in the sea without it. I cannot live among my own people without my seal skin. He felt sorry for her. However... Not being familiar with the concept of feelings, he mistook this feeling of pity for love. And because of her beauty and maybe her nakedness, he fell in love with her. And eventually, the goodman managed to wring from the selkie wife a reluctant consent to remain with him as his wife. She had little choice in the matter, as for all of you Orcadian know, she could not return to her kin in the sea without her skin. She turned out to be a thrifty, frugal, kindly wife. Although she was a creature of the sea, the goodman had a happy life with her. And they had seven children, four boys and three girls. And they were the prettiest children ever, ever, ever. And everyone thought they seemed pretty happy. But she wasn't as happy as she seemed. She was often seen gazing at the sea longingly, as if someone was playing desperado in the background. So one day, the goodman and his sons were out fishing, and she sent the girls to the shore to look for something, but the youngest daughter had to stay behind because she'd hurt her foot. And as always, as soon as she was alone, the sulky wife began to look for her seal skin. She looked high and she looked low, but she couldn't find the skin. Her daughter, who had been watching her, asked, Mum, what are you looking for? And she said, Oh, child, don't tell, but I'm looking for a pretty skin to make a shoe that would cure your sore foot. But mother, I know where it is. One day, you were out, and my father thought I was in bed asleep, and he took a pretty skin down and glowered at it for a short time, and then he folded it up and put it away in the asins over the bed. And she's like, what? You, It's been here all along? And she runs upstairs and looks above the bed, and she finds the skin and says, fare thee well, my pretty babe. I'm out of here. And with a wild cry of joy, she plunges into the sea. Now, because this is a story, as the Selkie is making her way out to sea, she passes her husband and her four sons in a fishing boat, and she reveals her face to them and says, Farewell, goodman of wasteness, farewell to you. I liked you because you were good to me, but I love my husband in the sea far more. Oh, that's a reveal twist. Twist. And this was the last time he ever saw her. Often, though, in his twilight years, he could be seen wandering on the empty seashore, hoping once again to meet his lost love, but never again. Did he look upon her fair face? Good. I know. So it's much more like he seems like a more calculating guy. And she seems like she lied to her child about curing her sore foot and peaced out really hard and was like married to someone else the entire time. I mean, she was unwillingly captured. 
Right, right. Anyway, they're not as happy as they were. They are made out to be now. So Selkies are obviously their own breed, right? Their own species, so it seems. There are also tales of another mythological creature in the area called the Finfolk. Are they more like mermaids? Yes, sort of. So in the Orkney Islands, there are clearly two supernatural races, and they seem to be very distinct entities. And they're basically polar opposites. Selkies are regarded as kind of like peaceniks. And they're really, really pretty. Like their human forms are just, you know, Adonis-like. Finfolk are much more mischievous and dark. So the Irish version of a mermaid story, there's a mermaid sunning, basking, as mermaids are wont to do, apparently. And she has a magical cloak instead of the seal skin. And the cloak is stolen by some dick fisherman. And she returns home with him, has his children, but one day finds her cloak and returns to the sea. So instead of the sulky skin, we've got the cloak, but it's basically the same template for the story. So Professor O'Hogan, who wrote Myth, Legend, and Romance in 1991, suggests that this tale springs from the ancient Irish version of the Topos of the Swan, or Heavenly Maidens, where a man marries a spirit woman who leaves him when a ritual taboo is broken. He suggests that in was in Ireland that a version developed where the lady took the form of a seal rather than a mermaid. And this version then spread to Scotland and Iceland in the Middle Ages. I think this is teaching really bad lessons about consent <laughs> to kids. Oh, well, so are fairy tales. So are all the fairy tales. Let's talk about Sleeping Beauty and consent. Oh, that's another episode. So the folklore seems very closely related but as I said, in the Orkney Islands, they're very separate. There are mermaids, or finfolk, and there are selkies. However, in Shetland, there's no distinction, except that finfolk just have more magic powers than their selkie counterparts. They just can do more. And Denison, again, says, Writers on the subject trusting to incorrect versions of old stories have often confounded mermaids and seals together, and have treated the two as identical. Samuel Hibbert, in his valuable work on Shetland, has fallen into this error and has been followed by most others whose writing on the subject I have seen. So this guy is saying, basically, everyone else has it wrong and only I figured it out. But he does have the authority of his Orkney informants, who did say that they were two distinct races, and the Orcadians were clearly correct. And it became gospel once Denison put it down. However, it seems like the Shetland people may not have actually been wrong. It seems like they may have been following like a more original, older strain of the lore and that it had just taken another step in the Orkney Islands. It seems like over time, the Finfolk lost their shape-shifting ability and that was emphasized and segmented and placed with the Selkie. So at one time, they both had that power? At one time, they, I think they were the same thing. Mm, interesting. So you think they were both the same thing and split into two and not two that kind of just got kind of amalgamated and mixed up? Right. And I'll explain more on that later. But I, I think it's interesting. Now, there were a bunch of mermaids or finfolk sighted in like the 1890s, kind of the Victorian era. There was the Dearness Mermaid with hundreds of witnesses, and they vowed to have seen this creature around Newark Bay. And from a contemporary account... It appears to be six to seven feet in length and has a little black head with neck, a snow-white body, two arms, and in swimming just appears like a human being. At times, it will appear to be siding on a sunken rock and will wave and work its hands. 
There's also one reported in the Hoi Sea in 1913. Ralph Taylor and crew, when visiting their lobster creels the other day, saw a strange creature, which looked like a mermaid, close by the foot of the old man. It rose out of the water to a height of three feet and looked like a lady with a shawl around her shoulders and streaming down her face. This is the third occasion it has been seen at close range by them. The oldest people have never seen anything like it before and wonder what it can be. Some think it must be the Dearness Mermaid on tour. Really? There's only one. Clearly. Its species would not last very long. So some people speculate that this spate of sightings around the Victorian period might have something to do with some unusual weather conditions that were occurring. Both of these sightings were followed by a major storm. So in the northern waters, the seas are very cold, obviously, and warm air from the storm would come in and mix with the cold vapor. And this would create a kind of mass or vortex because of the constantly changing temperatures, which act as a distorting lens that exaggerates the height of an object at sea level, not its width. So seen through this distorting wall of air, the top of a seal's head or even a rock can appear like a towering mermaid described in both accounts. That's very interesting. I thought so. So what is peculiar about this strain of mermaids? Well, according to Denison, the Finfolk lived at Finfolkenheim, or Finfolk home at the bottom of the sea rather than Finnmark in Norway, where they're said to live by other reporters. Now, Jesse Saxby, who wrote Shetland Traditional Lore and is the guy that Denison said bungled everything up. Folklore feud. Like family feud, but with folklorists. It'd be so much fun. Survey says... Name two places that Finfolk live. So... He writes that mermaids were well known as selkie wives and their seal lovers that were said to be fallen angels in a hateful disguise. But Samuel Hibbert wrote that mermen and merwomen were one shape that they put on is that of an animal above the waist, yet terminating below in the tail and fins of a fish. But most favorite of forms is a large seal or half fish. Hibbert goes on to say the greatest danger to which these rangers of the sea seem liable are from the mortal hurts they receive upon taking themselves the form of the larger seal or half fish. So these accounts are kind of supporting the idea that a selkie is a finfolk is a selkie is a finfolk. Right, it seems like the stories probably do mix, I mean, I would think. Now, when taken as a separate entity, the female finfolk have a really rough lot in life. Selkies aren't doing too good either. Just snatch a skin. Got yourself a reluctant bride. I think there's a website for that. Don't go to it. So they start off as beautiful mermaids. And then if they marry a fin man, which is a merman, they begin to progressively lose their beauty. During the first seven years of married life, she gradually lost her exquisite loveliness. During the second seven years, she was no fairer than a woman on the earth. And in the third seven years of married life, the mermaid became ugly and repulsive. The only way by which a mermaid could escape the loss of her charms was by marrying a man of the human race, and this union could only be consummated by sexual intercourse. Cloaca? <laughs> I'm not sure, but let's not dwell on the physical here. Let's just take a moment to examine what's happening. She gets uglier. That's an allegory for you. I know. And then, I mean, she's cured by... Magic penis. Magic penis, right. So if she failed to have sex with a human and get magic penis, she would be sent to land after becoming old and ugly. And she would be sent there with a purpose, 
to collect silver for her husband, her her fish husband. And she would earn money through magic by curing disease. So she was like a traveling gypsy woman. She was a, basically a, an old crone witch. Oh, good. Right? So once you become worthless and useless and ugly, you get to be an old crone witch? Yes, and shockingly, even old no-dick-getting mermaid witches kept black cats. Interesting. They could turn into fish, the cats. Catfish? Cat, yes, they could turn into catfish. And then they would go under under the sea and go speak to their husband and bring money back and forth, kind of the, the intermediary go-between. And every once in a while, if the money wasn't coming in like it should have been, the husband would basically say, don't make me come up there. Seriously, he'd bitch slap her? He would go on land, and if she was not getting enough money, he would bitch slap her. He mm-hmm. Seriously, they, he would beat her. It says, upon his arrival, he would give her a sound beating, which usually resulted in her being confined to bed for days. What the what? fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. What would Freud say about this? Nothing nice. So, and just to add further insult to this entire life cycle, the finfolk men or the fin men were renowned for their beauty. Of course. Having a dark, gloomy visage and being melancholy, but beautiful. Hunky fin folk. And they also like to hook up with human women, just like their seal bros. Of course. Denison says, not only did females of the fin folk sometimes become temporary wives of men, but males of the watery race frequently formed illicit connections with fair ladies on land. These gentlemen never abode for any length of time on shore. Once they came on land to indulge in unlawful love. And when divested of their sea skins, they were handsome in form and attractive in manners. They often made havoc among thoughtless girls and sometimes intruded into the sanctity of married life. Say it ain't so. I couldn't help myself. He was a thin folk. Many, he, he took his skin off. He filleted himself right there and then I filleted him. What? <laughs> no. Stop it. It just writes itself, you know. So many wild tales were told of the amorous connection between fair women on oath and those amphibious gentlemen. If a young fair girl was lost at sea, she was not drowned, but taken captive by a selkie or a finfolk. In olden times, mothers used to sin, that is, to paint a sign of the cross on the breast of their fair daughters before going to sea to the Lamas Fair. So they were very attuned to the idea that these beautiful young women might fall prey to the amorous affections of their aquatic brethren. So there's another kind of finfolk that we need to talk about now. Another one? It's very complicated. (laughs) I'm sorry. Now, let's talk about Norway for a second. Why not? And also Sweden a little. So there were people that they called fins that were actually Sami or Lops. The Finno-Ergic-speaking indigenous population of northern Scandinavia. Not modern Finns, but the word Finny, or Finner, in Old Norse, kind of covered both Sami and Finn. And Finn still means Sami and Lap in Norwegian dialects today. Now, these people were the mysterious others to the Norse, the Sami and the Lops. And so they were incorporated into their legends and folklore as sort of mysterious, mythical beings who were ascribed kind of superpowers. Uh, mystical others. Mystical others. So they were like the gypsies. The they, other that had magical, mystical powers. They were. They were pagans. They were true pagans. Say it ain't so. No, it's cool. <laughs> I will say it so. So they could apparently voluntarily transform into wolves or bears. And that's kind of their staple power in Norse and Swedish folklore. Now, there are also 
stories in Icelandic sagas about the Sami. The Sami were represented as both highly skilled wizards and practitioners of witchcraft and as teachers of magic. Many of the key wizarding characters in Icelandic tradition learn their techniques from Sami masters. Icelandic Finns could not only transform into wolves and bears, but also, and I believe this is key, also whales and walruses. It's badass. It is badass. First of all, I'm picking walrus every time. Over whale? Yeah, I want tusk. Narwhal. I mean narwhal. Killer whale? They don't have tusk. They have teeth. I don't care. I want tusk. (laughs) I'd be a narwhal if that's an option also. Then you get to be a unicorn whale. Yay! But I think that's key because I think that's going to give us something of how the fin turn into selkies later. I think that, again, is another important bridge in tracking this origin story. But Himskringla. It was, was almost certainly a Sami who was sent by King Harlan Grossman of Denmark in the form of a whale to Iceland to see whether Iceland was worth invading. He was driven off by the Icelandic land spirit. Harold abandoned the idea. But then we, ha- you know, we have a clear tie of this Sami Norwegian presence taking on the aquatic mammal form. And I, again, believe that's an important bridge. So in 11th century, the Norwegian book Historia Norvija records, here a Sami wizard sends his soul out in the form of a whale to accomplish a task. And it's likely that that is the earliest written evidence of Sami shaman sending his spirit out this way. Now, the Orcadian version of a te- of the same text contains this. The Sami's intolerable ungodliness will hardly seem credible, nor how much devilish superstition they exercise in their art of magic. For some of them are revered as soothsayers by the foolish multitude, because wherever asked, they can employ an unclean spirit, which they call a goddess, and make many predictions for many people, which later come to pass. By marvelous means, they can also draw to themselves objects of desire from distant parts, although far off themselves miraculously bring hidden treasures to light. Sounds like he was editorializing a little bit Mm -hmm. about those mysterious, ungodly others. Yes, that's going to happen for, you know, until forever. Now. Yeah. Right now. Right now. It's happening somewhere. I see you, blogger. So once there were some Christians who were among the laps on a trading trip, and they were sitting around the table when their hostess suddenly collapsed and died. The Christians were very upset, but the Sami were not at all sorrowful and told them that she had, was not dead, but had been snatched away by the Gandhi of rivals, and they, they themselves would soon retrieve her. So the spirit travel is very important. Now, as I said, the Sami may actually have a credible claim to being the last authentic pagans in Europe. That's interesting. Before moving on, kind of to recap, in the wider Scandinavian tradition, the Sami were called the Finns. And these were a strange people who were renowned for their magic. And they were also strongly connected with maritime mammals, being able to take on the forms of whales and walrus, and can be described as, in purely mythological terms as supernatural beings. So the Finn folk are real people. Yes. Not mermaids. Right. So <laughs> Finnar, again, is the old Norse word for Sami. They were a culturally autonomous group. And they did live in Finnmark, contrary to whatever Denison says about Finn Folkenheim. <laughs> I'm sure one guy was like, yeah, they live in Finn Folkenheim. It's under the sea. So the Norwegians accepted Christianity and the Sami were like, nah, I'm all right. And so then they became even more 
terrifying. I'm just hanging out here with my seal bros. Cool. We're going to write about you. I'm going to say nasty things. We're hacking into your phone. So research suggests that the Norse may have written about the Sami as giants or dwarves just to kind of highlight their otherworldliness and put them firmly in the realm of myth. In Norway, the Sami's reputation was such that there were laws forbidding Christians from having contact with the Finnar or going and seeking knowledge of the future from them or asking them to do healing. There were people of the Finnar group who were formally accused of practicing witchcraft during the Thirty Years' War and put on trial. Things. So around the ninth century-ish, we began to get some migration of Norwegian and Swedish bulk into the northern isles and the stories at least the stories at least of the finn folk came with them the term norway finn was in general use until the 1900s and it was sort of this like a gypsy you know like it was kind of the term for gypsy you went to the norway finn and mm-hmm. found out about your fortune now from the finner this group of magicians that the norwegians came and told about somehow we get finn folk and it seems that it's just pure confusion over the word fin. Do you mean like fin, like a fish fin? Yeah. Because if you don't know what they're talking about, if you haven't seen a fin, you don't know what they're saying. You're like, uh, magical fins. Fin but I mean, the, the tradition's there, that they turn into aquatic creatures. Right. And so eventually it just becomes like mermaids. And then you have the intrusion of other stories where there are mermaids. And you're like, oh, fins. They have fins. Clearly they're fin folk. Because this is in... Scotland. Correct. Scotland, Ireland area and the Northern Isles. Now, the association with fins and magic is throughout this area. Until the 20th century, we do have the use of finny as an epithet for peculiar old women. So witches, gypsy, that kind of thing. According to Ernest Marwick, around the beginning of the century on Sandy in Orkney, there was an old woman named Baba Finn who was reputed to have strange powers. And it was asserted that her ancestors were fins. You know, there were families, and I guess they may still do it now, in Greece, less than a century ago, that claimed married ancestry. Right. And there's definitely that strain here with the kids with the selkie paws and selkie children and all that. So I don't need to debunk mermaids. So I don't know why I felt the need to do this. I just think it's really interesting. Wait, what are you saying? I don't see how you've debunked anything. I debunked the, I did the weather thing. Nah. Okay. Well, let me try again. (laughs) Let me try again. So let's talk about kayaks. I know this seems like it's out of nowhere. Just go with me. This is a very Austin discussion. It's going to be a journey. (laughs) It's going to be a journey. In a kayak. In a kayak. So in the Chronicle of the Kings of Norway, it's written that with deer sinews without nails and with whites of willow instead of knees, there were these Boats constructed by the Laplander fins, the Laps. And the Vikings were much impressed because these boats were very light and fast. And so these magical, real people, the Sami, the Laps, were purportedly making skin kayaks. And there's a verse from that Icelandic saga I mentioned earlier that says, Our skin-sewed fin boats slightly swim. Over the sea, like when they skim, our ships are built without a nail, and few ships like ours can row or sail. Okay, so I think I see where you're going with this. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They have seal scan boats. Maybe. Maybe. So in the 17th century, there was a spate of sightings in Orkney, and they were claiming to see finmen. 
For example, in Ide in 1682, there was a sighting of a, of a Finn man, but he rode away quickly when islanders tried to catch him. In 1684, there was another sighted off Westray, and a Finn man's boat was once touched at Bury Kirk. And it's off. <laughs> Did he have to marry somebody? Definitely. He left it there to go get hitched. But there are stories that the Finn men were incredible rowers. So in this point, they don't have the fins. We've not yet collapsed them to be mermaids. They're still their own thing. Weirdly aquatic, magical people. Great boats. The best boats. And so one of the pieces of these legends about the boats is that they move very quickly without a sail. Like a kayak. Like a kayak. So imagine this thing in the water starts removing its skin and you realize it's a human. They probably wore seal skin outer garments as well. Mm. Right? As their buoyancy decreased, the wet kayaks would also drop beneath the surface of the water. Once again, explaining these mermaid sightings where a sea creature viewed from the waist up is traveling through the water at high speed. And if you were up above them on a big ship or something and you look down, the kayak could also kind of look like a tail. But the tail's not like a dolphin tail. No, and in the accounts, it's actually mentioned that the fin folk have pointed tails. Like the tail of a kayak. Right. Interesting. So there may be a tie between these kayaks and selkies, not just fin folk. Tradition dictates that selkie folk become human by removing their skins. And without a skin, they can't return to the water, and they're trapped. So if you see a person on a beach, and you see an overturned skin kayak beside them, maybe it kind of looks like a person took off their seal skin and is basking and dancing and things. I mean, they could actually see them, probably do it, you know, get out of their boat, take their seal skin off, and just warm themselves up in the sun after being in the cold water. Right. It's not that crazy of a thought. And if you took their skin or you took their kayak, there's no way in hell they're getting back in the water. I think that's the part that's probably the most made up part. One guy did it one time and it got really out of hand as the story passed on. Because I think that if someone came and stole my seal skin after I just like rode to an island up across the sea, you could probably kick someone's ass to get it back. Yo, bro, you got my seal skin. (laughs) Nice seal skin you got there. You think these look like well-formed breasts? <laughs> these are pectorials. I've been rowing. <laughs> Hit that row machine hard. It's bad day. It's bad day. Chest day. <laughs> so where did the kayakers come from? This is a good question. From Norway? Maybe. There's not a lot of evidence of these kind of boats being made in Norway, but no one was really meticulously recording the Sami history or And that would obviously not be preserved. But there's some thought that they might be, like, Inuit people. Interesting. Because at the time when all these sightings were taking place in the early 17th century, it's what was known as the Little Ice Age. Because of a weather anomaly, the temperatures of the ocean were about 5 degrees colder than they are now. And that's 5 degrees Celsius, by the way. And this was the case as far south as Iceland. So you would have had much more permafrost, much more solid ice, where people could have walked to the edge of, made the land masses bigger. And so some people think that maybe the historical Finmen, these people in the kayaks, were actually Arctic Inuit, who had followed ice flows. And it also would support the idea that is passed down in Orcadian tradition, that if you see a, a Finn man or a Finn woman, you're going to have a poor catch, because it seems like these cold temperatures would... Mm 
mean affect your fishing yes and interestingly there is some evidence that there were these kayakers because some of the kayaks have actually had actually been preserved like there was one in edinburgh forever i think until it deteriorated into dust well i'm proven wrong <laughs> so maybe canoes <laughs> kayaks that's what i said so norwegians whales walruses magic selkies finfolk catfish Stockholm Syndrome, kayaks. Cool story, bro. Want to hear another? Yeah! So for some reason, in this episode, I dug into Russian folklore. What? No, that's my thing. The reason I wanted to talk about Rusalka is there's a great novel that I read called The Book of Speculation. It's kind of part of the storyline. Highly recommend. Go check it out. It's a novel. We don't recommend those that often. So Rusalka are the Russian kind of equivalent to mermaids or water nymphs or nereids. They're not necessarily the same. So they're sometimes shown alone as lovely maidens or as a group of girls, one of many daughters of a sea or a bird king. They're often feared because whenever they are disturbed in their peace, they can definitely cause trouble. Like what? Well, so a typical meeting. You have a peasant from Saratov on the Volga. And they told of going at night into the forest, where it was known that Rusalka lived. Now, they often lived near ponds or streams or rivers. And he was walking towards a pond in the middle of a grove. And they suddenly saw water swirl and move, though someone was bathing. Now, coming closer, he was astonished by the sudden emergence of a beautiful girl who went to the edge of a pool, sat down, and began to comb her hair in the moonlight. Now, when the moon went behind the cloud, she called out to it, Moon, shine, shine, moon. And it obeyed her wishes. Cool. Now, he was very worried because he knew he was in mortal danger. Because if you disturb a Rusalka, they will often drown you. And sometimes tickle you to death. Shut the fuck up. Can you imagine a worse death? No, I really can't. Tickled underwater. Samantha. It's horrible. It's right? so freaking Russian. And like you would never think of it. A Russian would. <laughs> so, as in folklore everywhere, throughout different parts of the kind of Russian Slavic area, you have different versions of these Rusalka, these kind of water nymph maidens that are very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very popular in the Ukraine. And there, Rusalka would actually perch in trees. Very birdy of them. They would do this in the spring when the sap rose. And they would call to the village girls for gifts because they're often seen as the bringers of fertility. Right. Water. Right. Life-bearing. Exactly. And the girls would decorate birch trees with ribbons and votive towels. Now, if the men would follow the call and become curious and seek them out, this would, of course, end in their death. Right. Very siren. And so they are tied to different imagery and nature, depending on where they are. In the Ukraine, they're often linked with water. In Belarus, often the forest and fields. In fertile areas, they're usually beautiful naked maidens or wearing kind of white shifts. And in North Russia, there's a form of Rusalka that people aren't sure if they're actually the same origin or not, where they're more like these large-breasted, scary Amazonian women. But they do Their have... tickling would suck. <laughs> but they do have legs and feet, and they can control the weather. They have powers of transformation that can turn to swans and ducks or fish women. But they aren't just the guardians of this life-giving water. They're also goddesses of fate. So this is Lady of the Lake. This is all I can think about, right? Like King In Arthur? a way, yeah. 
She yeah. she brings in the sword. She, she brings keeps, in the sword. She keeps Excalibur. The Rosanka would kill them. <laughs> Fair, but he's special. So different. He's special. He's special, and they keep the fate. Is he? Is he special? He pulled the sword from the stone. I mean, he's no Lancelot, but I'll take him. It's a Guinevere. Said. I know it is. We're not doing that again. <laughs> but so with that fertility, sometimes you would see like circles in the forest or in fields where grass grew really lush. And these were spots where the Rusaklo would dance. And they often would come out in the summer and the spring. They'd go up into trees or they would come out and dance. Lots of dancing and basking with all of these characters. Of course. What else does a woman have to do? I don't bask. I've never basked in my life. (laughs) Maybe I should bask more. That's the problem. (laughs) You need to bask more. So there is a summer festival in Russia and Ukraine and sometimes bearing the name of the Rusalka. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a fertility festival. And girls will dress as the Rusalka in these kind of white shifts and do fortune telling with trees and flowers and water and then dance around. Sounds like, like a do. new age orgy party. I don't think there's orgies. That's what they tell you. They don't put that on the they don't put that information on the pamphlets. <laughs> Not leaflet approved. Well, now, some folk traditions say that they dwell in these crystal halls, radiant with gold and silver and precious stones, the bottom of the river sea. And some folk traditions say they have to make a nest out of straw and feathers, (laughs) collected during that green week when the festival is, which is the seventh after Easter. I want the palace. I want no part of a nest. And there's even the tradition about the combing, the combing of the hair. And Mm -hmm. so some traditions say that if their hair dries out, then they will die. Oh. And so that's one of the reasons they're afraid of going away from the water too far and they have their comb with them. With that magical comb, they can always produce a flood by passing it through their waving locks. Oh. So I personally feel like they're water Romanovs, but I'm probably wrong. Is there any more academic or traditional origin for them where do they where what are they oh well the folk tradition is much more fun so they are very la llorona like they're the souls of girls who have drowned themselves because of desertion by a lover or rejection of a parent and this is one of the reasons they're sad is kind of keeping themselves isolated they can also be the spirits of those killed near water or the spirits of unbaptized children it is very la llorona now, sometimes they're said to get their beauty and eternal youth from the devil, who has boiled them in a cauldron. Oh, God. They're much like, more like Water Ophelia, though, than Water Romanoff. Well, and they definitely display that anger that one would get from either being killed by a lover or... Spur- yeah. Hell hath no fury? Yes, exactly. And so... Like boiled pretty ladies? I don't know. Well, so they could be some of this vindictiveness of the dead improperly venerated by the living. Mm-hmm. But also that fury, that fury of women, of being you know, just kind of the second-class citizens. The oppressed. Yes. And I love this quote. Of peasant women whose lives and cults were treated with rough disrespect by men, but who were nonetheless fearful of their magic. But it's usually men that are killed. The girls can get gifts from them, can get good fortune, can learn fortune-telling and lessons, and the men are the ones that are killed. Mother Russia, am I right? Now, as we keep seeing, and it's just going to keep being a trend, you can you can capture and marry one. How's that go? As well as it always does. <laughs> now, one narrative from Smolensk province had a peasant claiming that his great-grandfather had captured Rusalka by pulling her into a magic circle and putting his cross on her. 
Now the spirit accompanied the peasant home and carried out the woman's tasks for a year. Now the following Rusalka week, she again disappeared back into the forest. I think I think great grandpa got a mail order bride that didn't work out. Where do you get a mail order bride from if you're in Russia? Ukraine. <laughs> but it's hard to really like tack on, you know, where this comes from. But there's ideas of what it portrays are really obvious. And it's probably this kind of culmination of all these different kind of water spirits and demon-like spirits and spiritual aid to the unclean dead and fertility goddesses because the term Rusalka is not really seen written down until the 19th century. It's very interesting. But the ideas of Rusalka and of that fertility festival and that week after Easter have been around for centuries and centuries. So there is probably definitely ties to older deities and spirits but it's not clear the exact lineage well clearly they just started showing up and said hello we are Rosalka write this shit down we will not be repeating ourselves under penalty of tickling you to death tickle to death so we've talked about a lot of possible ideas of where things like mermaids and selkies and all of these other sea creatures have come from could they have come from fin folk could they have come from sirens or water nymphs or from rusalka i think they came from the sea i know a lot of people say could they be dolphins could people have seen dolphins could people have seen seals whales or one favorite is manatee manatee the silliest of all the animals it looks like a rock It looks like a not completely drawn elephant. It's very true. Very true. Because they're related to elephants. That's true. And actually, their family name are Cyrenians. Like sirens. Exactly. Ah, they see what you did there. It's very clever. So let's talk about manatees because they're super fun. And they live in Florida where the rest of the crazy things are. They have a head that's very similar to a walrus. So quite attractive. But caveat and they're going to lose cool points here. No tusk. No tusk. No tusk. Now they have flippers in the front that have fingernails. Fabulous. So they can get manatee cures. No. And they can use their little flippers to carry things, which is kind of cool. Now they have a flattened tail. Looks like a beaver tail. Again, looks like it was badly drawn. <laughs> However, they have a cousin. A weird cousin. It's not that weird. It's a dugong. You can't get much weirder than manatee. They have like a suction vacuum nose. They have like a, it looks like kind of like trunk thing. And they use it to like feed from the bottom of the vegetation. vegetation. But it looks very vacuumy. And they have a forked tail like a dolphin. Much sexier tail, if I do say so. Much more in line with a mermaid. Now, it can raise its head and shoulders out above the water. And interestingly enough, there is an odd feature both the dugong and the manatee have breast kind of in the humanish area. In the pectoral position. Right. Which really you'd only see in a few things, like humans, obviously. Bats and elephants. Which bats they're have to. boobies? They're what? bat boobies? Did you just say that? I'm sorry, I didn't know this. Well, yeah, the, the bat nipples on the Batman costume. Oh, you're right. They were just being correct. Now they can raise their head and shoulders out of the water. Right, so you have things like 
manatees and dugongs that often are cited as a very possible source for these sightings of mermaids. Such as in one kind of encyclopedia of animal life from 1894, so the dugong and the manatee are the only two mermaid kind now existing. So their lesser known cousin, the mermaid, is just extinct because people kept throwing rocks at them. Right. And then there was a description of a mermaid in England's Magazine of Natural History, which described a skeleton of a mermaid that was being displayed in Portsmouth. It was being submitted to the members of the Philosophical Society. And there, whenever they looked at the skeleton, they were easily able to prove that this was just a dugong. And now, one frequent feature of mermaids is that it's a bad omen. And if you see this, you might crash. And, and that might be related to dugongs and manatees being often near the seashore, or sandbars, or things like that. Things that a ship could run into. Dugongs have been seen as a lady of the sea for thousands of years. In 1959, a 3,000-year-old cave drawing depicting dugongs was found in a Malaysian cave. Because in this part of the Pacific Island nations in that area, dugong word translates to lady of the sea. Mm. Now, in Palau which is a Pacific nation, Micronesia, the dugong plays a central role in traditional ceremony and lore. It would traditionally eat them during celebrated feasts and special occasions, and specific parts of the dugong's skeleton, the vertebrae and other things, signified the rank of a chief in the Palauan society. Now, there were often stories of young women transformed into these gentle grazers, and they still have these old wooden storyboards and carvings and illustrations of these kindly girls that were transformed into dugongs that would aid fishermen lost at sea. Mm. Now, one legend has it that a mother discovered that her daughter was pregnant. Now, this girl was not married. So the girl and her family were very stigmatized. So to avoid further disgrace, the mother cautioned her daughter to be very particularly careful in observing all the traditional taboos on food for pregnant women. Now, the daughter diligently obeyed. After several months, she gave birth to a baby girl. The mother was still concerned that her daughter should observe the rituals and avoid food that she was not supposed to eat. Now, one day, the mother went to the tarot patch while her daughter stayed home to care for the baby. Now, the daughter could not resist eating this taboo food. Now, as she was trying to open up this keem nut, her mother came home. She was so surprised to see her mother that she left the house, went towards the dock, and with her mother and the baby following her, went to the edge of the dock and jumped into the water. The mother pleaded for her to return, but to no avail. The daughter swam on further, finally surfacing as a dugong. The mother wanted to honor her daughter and to have people remember her daughter's fate. And so this is their origin of a tribute being paid to a married woman. <laughs> So this is the origin of, like, the dowry? Kind of. Yeah. It's like, look look what we suffer. Look how hard it is to be a, a woman. Look the pressure you put on us. Pay up. Kind of, yeah. I like it. <laughs> so it's interesting because you look throughout the different cultures and you look at the sea life and especially the aquatic mammals and you can see how closely tied those ideas of the very human-like animal in the sea 
gets tied to kind of the mermaid, whether it be dolphins or seals or walruses or whales or manatee or dugong. Now, interestingly, when we were looking into the dugong, we found out that there was a recently extinct member of the Sirenian group that was giant. And the illustrations of that are kind of my favorite. I encourage you all to go look that up. Also, as long as we are discussing possible weird things that inspired mermaid stories, I just want to put forward the idea of Amazonian river dolphins because they're pink. They are pink. I think they're, we've covered like weird shifty folklore about the guys that would come on land, how they would be dolphins in disguise. and mm-hmm. yeah, They have their own set of folklore, but I'm just going to say those are very skin-toned strange animals <laughs> so we did that whole episode without mentioning a little mermaid yet feels wrong right so true so we must it's time let's get our hans on so the little mermaid is not folklore it's not it's a literary fairy tale by one mr hans christian anderson and it was written in 1837 in denmark now it is the story of the youngest daughter of King Triton, and we join her on her 15th birthday, on the day that she is meant to ascend to the surface. And she's like screwing around with that fish. No, there's no In her little cave with the fork and things. Yeah. I want to be. Stop it. Where the people are. (laughs) But anyway, she does. She does want to be where the people are. She's going to go up to the sea, go up to the surface, survey the scene, and she is to return. She's to go up and see sunset check out earth stuff and promptly return to her kingdom under the sea under the sea under the sea now her sisters all report that they had very pleasant experiences when they went up to the surface they saw sunsets and heard church bells and their hearts were warmed but they were all very happy so they have like a little mermaid rumspringer basically that's essentially what's happening here so she goes up she sees the sunset she's like that's cool whatever but then the sun sets and she sees fireworks and she looks and she sees basically a party barge and on board really in the story really for real not just summarizing the movie they're having a birthday party for the prince and it's a bunch of dudes and they're all hanging out and having this birthday party and she's like that looks like way more fun than my birthday party by the way we have the same birthday how cool is that not something they'd highlight in the story (laughs) so then unfortunately i guess because she's a mermaid she brings the storm Storm in her womanly ways. Yes. And so there's a massive storm and everyone on the boat drowns except for the prince because the little mermaid saves him. And she brings him back to land and brings him to the garden of a monastery. And she's like kissing him and falling in love with him and all of these things. But then he's going to have a selkie baby. (laughs) He's going to have a selkie baby. This is so true. But then the dawn is breaking and the women begin to come out of the monastery. It's repeatedly called a monastery, but why are there women there? I believe it is a nunnery. And they run out to see about him and she has to flee the scene. And he wakes up believing that these goodly women have saved his life and has no knowledge of the Little Mermaid being involved in his not being dead. That sounds rife with symbolism. Is it is because it's like the fairy tale says, no, no, everyone must be with one of their own kind and with the partner that society says is right for you. In the monastery, in the church. Right. You have this, you know, tower of morality and you also have him in a garden. A church 
sanction garden. Right. So she goes back under the sea and she's feeling sort of sad. And she's like, ugh, I really like this guy. Like, I'm sure I do. I'm 15 and I know stuff. At least that part's very accurate. So she goes to see the sea witch. Ursula. The sea witch. Sea witch. And Ursula decides that she's going to give her this. It's not Ursula. It's Ursula. It's the sea witch. It's whatever. That she's going to give her this poison or potion, whatever, however you see it. And she demands her voice as payment. Now, in the fairy tale, she literally cuts out her tongue, which is a bit more graphic than the magic seashell. Wow. She's never going to be able to return to the sea. And she is you know, giving up her tail, which is sort of her defining characteristic, her means of survival, etc., and her voice. And her voice. Like, I mean, very symbolic, right? Like, that's her symbol of agency. You don't have to dig deep here. No, <laughs> Hans is laying this shit up for you. On a platter. And so when her tail splits into legs, it feels as if a sword is cutting her in two. Let's talk about that for a second. Should we? Yes. Now? Now? Okay, we will. Yeah. <laughs> so, to back this way up, sirens... And mermaids, especially in Greek Roman tradition, are often depicted with two tails. And many folklorists now cite this as a great imagery of the monstrous feminine. So they're given two tails just to provide like a harbor. Yeah, it's split legs. Right. Okay. Split tail. Monstrous creature representing female sexuality. Yeah, I can see that. But of course, this is not representing the monstrous feminine. It's representing deflowering. Right. Pain, the pain of sexuality and being unchaste. Back to the fairy tale. Yay! So she gives up her voice because she'd been a beautiful singer, as we all know from the opening number. However, she does become this exquisite dancer, just beautiful dancer. However, again, whenever she so much as steps, it feels like knives are passing through her entire body. Painful to walk. Legs hurt. She's not used to them. And the pain never goes away. So, fun fact. Fun fact. As previously discussed in this story, we've not covered it yet here, mermaids don't get souls. What? Mermaids don't have souls. Because they're not people. They're not descendants of Adam and Eve. Correct. So, they live for 300 years, which is cool, but they don't have souls. They just turn into sea foam when they die. No big deal. They go back to the sea. We go back to the earth. Circle of life. Simba's dad dies. Everything's horrible. How many Disney movies can we see? All of them. We're going to do them all. So there's a caveat, though. Since she's undergone this process of becoming human, she can get a soul. Nice. If. Yes, true love. Yes. Really? Because some of his soul will flow over into her. She doesn't actually get her own soul. She gets his extra through the split tail. Through the magic penis. Magical dick. Yeah. Magical human dick. So the prince finds the little human, because she's no longer the little mermaid, even though that's what she's called, and is enchanted with her beauty. And he likes her dancing. Very fine dancing, he says. But she can't talk, because remember, she gave her tongue and her voice and all those things away. And that's a problem for forming, you know, lasting, meaningful relationships. This need to communicate. Very basic. Are you just steal a skin? I mean, whatever. And so, despite the fact that his parents want him to agree to an arranged marriage, he says no. He's in love with the Little Mermaid? He is in love with someone else. The Little Mermaid? The woman who saved him. 
Fucking nun. Fucking nun. <laughs> that old fucking nun. Fucking Abbott. <laughs> so, yes, he believes that the, this girl who rescued him is his true love. And even the little mermaid or the little human is like, you know what? She is really nice. Oh, my God. Stop being a basic bitch. She's really nice, y'all. Like, I swear to God. She's like the sweetest person. Bless her heart. So he and his betrothed rescuer, saintly priestess, goddess woman, decide they're going to get married on a boat because that went well for him the last time he had a boat party. And the mermaid is to go on the wedding boat with them and perform at their wedding because she's this beautiful dancer and apparently the most self-sacrificing of creatures. And she knows that he will never love her because he's in love with this other woman and clearly people don't stray and that would be silly. And so she knows she's going to die in the morning because she's failed to win a soul. That's curtains for her. There's no way to get out of this. Well, there is. Really? Her sisters know of her troubles and I guess through osmosis. And they cut off their hair and give it to the sea witch. So they give their symbol, one of their symbols of beauty, femininity. Yes. Chop it all off, give it to the sea witch. Sea witch is like, cool, here's a knife. So what? Here's a knife. Take it to your sister. Tell her that all she has to do to get to be alive is, you know, kill the prince. Two-time bastard. Right? Right. And so... They bring it to her, and she's like, thanks, guys. I know you chopped off all your hair. This is going to work better when Henry does it and Gifted the Magi, but I really can't use this. <laughs> she can't go through with it. She's supposed to kill the prince and let his blood drip on her feet. That's what she's supposed to do. And she can become a mermaid again and go be with her family. But she loves him, and she just can't do it. So she spends all night hiding out in their wedding chamber, it's a little creepy. A little stalkery. A little, little, little mm-hmm. creepy. Waiting for the sun to rise. Why isn't this part of the movie? At which time she will turn into seafoam and cease to exist. No soul, no prince. Painful stepping. Really not working out for her. And so instead of killing the prince and letting his blood drip on her feet, you know, as she was supposed to do, she decides that when the sun rises, she will jump from the ship. Now, this is our Thelma and Louise moment. Freeze frame. She jumps. She's turning into seafoam. And right at that moment, the air fairy steps in. Oh, thank God. Have we had this? Is no, new? she's this new. Is she's a new man here. out of the woods. Yes. Okay. This is a contrivance. It's, a lot of people <laughs> think this is tacked on. Actually, a lot of people think that it was not the original ending. Like the editor was like, dude, we need a happy ending here, man. Yeah. It's a fucking fairy tale, Hans. Put a fucking fairy in it. <laughs> Fine. So the air fairy from the ether appears and is like, oh, no, 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 honey. I gotcha. Her spirit becomes a daughter of the air. And she will be given a soul. Good news. Good news. Any day now. (laughs) We're still not there. But she will be given a soul if she does good deeds for 300 years. However, every time a a child cries, a day is added onto her sentence. So she's forever in purgatory. Basically. Because babies cry. (laughs) Official medical note. (laughs) Right, so 300 years of doing good deeds, she can get a soul and go to heaven. Lucky her. And that little ending there that, like, don't cry, don't be mean, or you get you make her be in purgatory longer is so fucked up and guilt-trippy. Don't cry. You're making the little mermaid not go to heaven. Basically. Oh, good. Let's teach our children right. So this is, like I said, it's a literary fairy tale. 
So what that means is that it was completely made up pretty much whole cloth by Hans. Yes. Now, Hans is an interesting character. Yes, he So he was born into extreme poverty. His parents did not live together until nine months after his birth, which is problematic in Denmark in the early 19th century. And there's also some doubt that this guy that moved in and said he was his dad is really his dad. That's in question as well. Now, of course, later when he became a writer, there was a, a swirl of rumor that he was actually descended from royal blood. Oh, of course. Weird. Was it merman blood? Exactly. Now, his maternal grandmother died in a poor house, and his mother also died in a poor house, and his paternal grandfather became mentally ill and also landed in the poor house, and several of his cousins were jailed for begging. Now, he did learn how to read, which is exceptionally impressive at this moment, like, from this pedigree. Should not have happened. But he attended the town's charity school and eventually moved to Copenhagen to work in theater. His mother was convinced that he was a genius, and actually enrolled him in a Jewish school when he was beaten by a schoolmaster. And that is crazy progressive. The beating? No, the moving. The school. Yeah, and like being like, it's okay. Jews are people too. But she also told him folk stories, and that's very important, obviously. And she would allow him to like stay home and sew dolls and put on puppet shows instead of going out and playing with the other boys. She was very indulgent in that way. She's like a modern mother. Mm Mm-hmm. He really did stand out, but not in a super awesome way. He was unusually tall and was often referred to as awkward and, quote, ugly. Now, he also developed a beautiful soprano voice, and he would use this talent in order to gain access to homes of the bourgeoisie, who allowed him to sing and recite for them. And he was eventually sent to work in a cloth mill, where he was called upon to sing for the fellow workers. And, of course, because this is a group of young men, they're like, he's a girl. Clearly, he's a girl. And so they pants him, basically, and he's humiliated. And then he goes on to work for a tobacco factory, and the episode repeats itself, which is horrifying. But he was, in a way, lucky to be born at this time, even if it seems like he's not. (laughs) Because it was the last period in history when, in a country town... Primitive folk culture was still vividly alive, yet in wider society, he was afforded with a chance of social mobility. Yeah, so he still grew up hearing the old stories. Right, but there's this new modern social structure that allows him to move up. Now, as important as his family was to forming his knowledge base and educating him and giving him these rare indulgences, as I said earlier, he had a really hard time kind of admitting how much he owed to them. He was always very ashamed of them. He's actually quite famous throughout even contemporary accounts about him and biographies later for having incredible vanity and snobbery. One of his key biographers, Wolschlager, said that Anderson's emotional incapacities might stem from his unsettled early life in which all of his social intercourse turned into a desire to impress the class above his own. And this left a terrible legacy, for in adulthood, even after he was famous and secure, his need for constant recognition and praise were pathological. He craved admiration like a shot of an addictive drug. So he definitely retains some of those childlike qualities. Absolutely. 
and even his contemporaries noticed this. One wrote that even in middle age, he was a child, according to the ideal of childhood, keenly sensitive and entirely egotistical, innocently vain, the center of life, interest, concern, and meaning to himself. Now, as you may have put together from some of the descriptions of Hans and this biographical fact that he never married nor had children nor had any known lovers, there were rumors. And there were letters. There were. He was rumored to have had a love affair with one Edward Cullen. And that's Edward with a V, which sounds much like Edward Cullen. I'm just saying. <laughs> now, Cullen also faced pressure to marry a princess, just like the prince in The Little Mermaid. Hmm. Taking this into account, a lot of literary criticism of both his story, The Little Mermaid, and the Disney film, The Little Mermaid, kind of revolve around queer theory. It's not that crazy. It's really not. Especially with Howard Ashman. Right. Who gave a little mermaid her voice in a beast. AIDS. No, what is it? <laughs> Who gave a mermaid her voice in a beast his soul or something like that. That beautiful dedication. I don't remember. Howard Ashman. Anyway, go listen to the AIDS episode. It's a heartbreaker. He's incredible. But he did do all the music for Little Mermaid and some of the story as well. So it's interesting to note that The Little Mermaid and both of its incarnations that we're discussing revolves around silence. It also revolves around breaking out of what's expected of you. Of right. Fitting that role. You need to go marry one of your own a kind. merman. Yeah, <laughs> merman. And get old and ugly real fast. Because so much she was like, nope. <laughs> And Anderson did find himself in a kind of an oppressive political climate. It was just not something he could act on and be a member of society like he wanted to be. He wanted to be everyone's favorite and the best and everyone to think he was just super. And there would have definitely been at least side eye at this moment in history had he acted on his impulses in a public way. Much rumors, I'm sure. So one critic says, Ariel's silence serves as a parallel for Anderson's own situation. He knew he had to keep his mouth shut about his own feelings, even though every moment it must have felt like he was walking on knives. Now, there is a lot of argument for kind of a queer reading of a Little Mermaid movie. It's a young person stifled by fear of the father and family, longing to escape into this fantasy world of the city where people are going to get it. On land, they understand, but they don't reprimand their daughters. What a theme. And... She wants to carry out this forbidden love affair that her father is completely against in the light of day and be accepted and be comfortable. And that scene where King Triton discovers her treasure trove of human goods is actually, upon reading this, really painful for a lot of queer kids or queer adults remembering coming out to their family. Yeah, them finding out when they didn't want them to. Yeah, being outed. And that kind of anger and just like feeling him turn from this loving, caring, paternal figure into this agitator. You know, this thing causing this massive anxiety for them. And of course, there's a lot of stuff about the rainbow at the end. Whatever. <laughs> you can read into it. You can read. once you And once you start. It's hard not to. Right. And even like Ursula's modeled on Divine. That's very true. And... I think a lot of trans people have also taken this up. Yeah. For the obvious reasons, this is a, a transformation story. Right. A transformation into what she feels she really is. But there is some historical evidence, more than just rumor, 
that maybe, perhaps, maybe, Anderson did at least have a massive crush on Edward Cullen. And that can be found in his letters. Let's read some. My noble heredity, Grand Duke. Your Highness can easily imagine my happiness on receipt of your warm, affectionate letter. It was as if we were again together at your Edisburg at the sad moment of parting. You pressed my hand and said you would be a kind and sincere friend. Your Royal Highness has gained in me a poet's soul, a human heart, the more. Your letter now lies among my most sacred treasures. I hope now, with the inauguration of my pen, that from today forth a great deal will be written and the new novel will burst into bloom. So he's using a new pen for the first time to write him this letter because that's romantic. It is. It's really great. Like, I love that. I think it's one of the sweetest things ever, actually. My stay in Holland, England, Scotland floats before me like a fantasy woven of joy and sunshine. And at the close come the beautiful days at Edersburg. With our reunion, our life together there, our parting. Yes, yes, my noble friend. I love you as a man can only love the noblest and best. This time, I felt that you were still more ardent, more affectionate to me. Every little trait preserved in my heart. On the cool evening when you took your cloak and threw it around me, it warmed not only my body, but made my heart glow still more ardently. Our morning chats at the coffee table were charming, the reef made by the clever, amiable young ladies. I have hung over the Thwaldson statue. The color is still in every leaf, and the sun is shining at this moment. The flowers are as fresh as the memories. All my dear friends at Copenhagen I have found well, my dear Colin, who has now become Excellency, in whom I love as a father. It seems strong and well as ever. May he remain so. It is beautiful autumn weather, and that also raises my spirit. The poem and the dramatic pieces are soon coming. I am rejoicing that your Royal Highness will hear these pulsations of my heart. And now you may be happy. He went on to tell him that their friendship was like the mysteries. It should not be analyzed, and that he longed for him as if he were a beautiful girl. So maybe there's a little something there with the whole Anderson feeling that he was silenced by traditions that he stepped into from another world that would not permit him to be fully accepted as he wished to be, and... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting note when looking at just the structure of the story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, feminists say things. Oh, really? They do. So one of the most problematic moments in the story from a feminist perspective is this whole page boy thing. What's that? Well, the prince dresses her up like a boy and allows her to sleep on a cushion by his door and passionately kisses her forehead when no one's looking and tells her like, maybe one day, maybe I might marry you. I might. I might. I really like you. Maybe one day we'll get married. So that's no good. Also, the gender thing is really strange, like hiding around as a dude. I could have been a maid or something. But he wants to keep her close. It's like very my pet, my pet, my pretty, my pretty. Nothing to see here. No sex stuff. Just move along. One critic, Virginia Borgia, explains, The Little Mermaid offers an oppressive mix of self-sacrifice and silence, only fully fleshed out. Out counterpoint to The Little Mermaid is the story of the sea witch who is grotesque sexuality incarnate. And then Regina Bendix reminds readers that Anderson admitted his dislike for grown women and his abhorrence of sexuality. 
In Han Christian Anderson, the misunderstood storyteller, Zach Sipes asserts that there is something perverse in his use of children to illustrate not only how proper behavior should work, but how sexuality should be governed. Through rigorously repressing female sexuality, Anderson not only tries to adjust a basic primal desire, but he creates a female stereotype that is unattainable and unhealthy. So this is seen in The Little Mermaid, The Red Shoes, and the Ice Queen. All of the heroines are children. Little Mermaid ends up having to turn into a daughter of the air in purgatory because she loved the wrong person. In the red shoes, the child lusts after the shoes and puts them ahead of everything else. And eventually they cause her downfall. And in the Ice Queen, it's very blankly stated that this love is only deserving of its survival because it remains pure and childlike. Mm -hmm. So over and over again, he stunts the growth of his female characters and he presents the idea of having a sexual awakening as a crisis that must be stopped, railed against. It's interesting. So going to the surface can be seen as a coming-of-age ordeal for The Little Mermaid. And this experience of going to the surface is supposed to give her this chance to sort of explore the upper world, notice that it's not that awesome, and then feel at ease with the idea of settling down and conforming. It is very much, as you said, a rumspringer, which is surprisingly <laughs> accurate. The outer world needs to become trivial so that she can go back, set up a home, and become a divine domestic. Just Hearth, home, babies. From a male perspective, like, go sell your oats. Go do those things boys do in the locker room. And then go get married. In the locker room, you say? In places. <laughs> right. And it's interesting because, you know, it's supposed to be the period from the time that you have the onset of adolescence to the time that you settle down and get married for boys. And Anderson collapses it into, like, go look at it <laughs> for girls. Just look, it's not so so great, right? And also, the sisters tell her during all of this talk of going to the surface that they love to capture sailors. Not capture, but they love to get the sailors and bring them underwater. And that the sailors are always very enchanted with their beauty and that a lot of times they drown by accident, but it's really no big deal because they get to go to heaven. They have souls anyway. Yeah, so that's fun. So one of my favorite scenes in the little mermaid is when the sea queen is getting her ready to go up to the surface this is an ordeal rite of passage so oyster shells are affixed to her tail before she goes up because it's a symbol of being royal and she complains that they hurt and the sea queen so her dowager grandmother explains well one must suffer to be beautiful a woman should be noble dependent upon her religion and husband and children, but above all, she should be beautiful. She should do everything to be liked by her man. She's not only dependent to one man as an object of desire, but to the rules of all men in society. She should be beautiful and skilled and have her man honored by other men. So that's kind of a lot. This whole story is a lot. So going to the surface, coming of age, obviously sexual awakening, going to the sea witch who is much more learned and worldly and saying like hey i think i love him and i know stuff and are saying okay cool well let me split you open with a sword and cut out your tongue <laughs> very thick symbolism now the scene with the sea witch is rife with phalluses they's everywhere <laughs> magic penises all the dicks yes so 
It's, they looked like a hundred-headed snake. They're all branches were long, slimy arms with fingers like wiggling worms. And she's frightened of the sea snakes. She does not like these sea snakes. They creep her out. She's horrified. But the sea witch allows the ugly fat water snakes to crawl and sprawl about her spongy bosom. But remember, this is Anderson writing, and this is a protagonist, so she is innocent and cannot cope with budding sexuality. So, you know, the Little Mermaid's horrified by all this. Ursula's, like, letting that scaly fish sea snake hang out in her boobs, whatever. And the tongue cut out really does kind of have, like, some castration imagery behind it, if you want to get a little Freudian. Yeah. And according to Myers, Anderson has a strong feminine identification, which he repressed, then instilled in his own subconscious desires into his characters. The cutting out of the Little Mermaid's tongue is essentially Anderson's way of repressing his own feminine identity and sexual desires. He's metaphorically removing sexuality from his character. And Zipes goes on to say, Anderson is severe and punitive when children pursue their dreams that involve sensual and sexual exploration. Anderson ultimately channels his disgust for sexuality against this young girl. It is clear that Anderson's feminine ideal is to repress one's sexual desire. Stories are tragic. A lot of his stories are tragic. I think, I mean, even Little Match Girl is horrifying. Oh, that's so depressing. And the Ice Queen and the Red Shoes and the Little Mermaid. It's all about little girls dying. But they don't get to develop into adulthood. But they are killed. Because if they're killed, they can't fuck up, basically. Well, that just goes back to the dead maiden floating mm-hmm. in the water. The preserved virginal beauty. They're forever pure. Right. And they're given the retribution after they kind of like offer themselves as a sacrifice. The mermaid becomes the daughter of the air. Karen, the girl from the red shoes, travels along the shaft of sunlight to heaven. Really, shaft of sunlight. We had to. Come on, Hans. And then Gerda does get to grow up. This is the girl from the Ice Queen. But she never really becomes an adult. And you know, that she and her lover are described as grown up, but children still at heart. And it presents a feminine ideal that is undoubtedly unattainable because we do not remain children. You know, on the one hand, we're told we should be innocent and chaste and young forever. And on the other hand, we're told that it is our duty to procreate the earth. Whatever works best for what we're talking about. Yeah, it's just it's complicated. It's a tricky dichotomy. And if you get pregnant out of wedlock, you could very easily wind up as a dugong. Happens to the best of us. Happens all the time. But what's important when we're reading this story through the sort of feminist lens is the acquisition of a soul. That's key. Because it is as much for the love of the prince as to have a soul and get to live forever in the kingdom of heaven that the Little Mermaid goes to explore this idea She's not content with 300 years. She wants eternity. And in order to get it, she has to be loved by this man, which is horrifying in and of itself. Like, there's no getting past that. That's just the worst. We can split open fins and make legs and we can cut out tongues all you want. It's all terrible. But this idea that you literally do not have a soul until a man loves you is one of the most depressing, (laughs) awful themes ever written into a fairy tale ever that's what most disney movies tell you anyway right no they don't they're not that bad come on and again it's important to note that to anderson's sexual impulses were unacceptable 
and he rewarded the characters that could overcome them in a weird roundabout way and harshly punished the ones that couldn't. So it is funny that Ariel, the Little Mermaid, is now a Disney princess. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, is in all the theme parks and and little girls are wearing her shirts and dressing up as her and you know, have dolls and all that. And like looking back to its origins, it's just amusing because she's now this wholesome she's wholesome but she's also just something she's kind of almost a role model well she is and she does have a backbone you know in in the movie she definitely does kind of strike out on her own even if it's for kind of stupid reasons but she's tough and she sings cool songs and you know things seem to work out for her she's not that terrible i don't mind the little mermaid i've seen a lot of really nasty criticism of her that she's too sexy is one of my favorites where shell bra no (laughs) But it just sort of makes you wonder, when you look at the way we use this character now, the way that we employ it in our culture, in our everyday life, like, I have Ariel pajamas, my daughter has an Ariel doll, this is, like, we like Little Mermaid in this house. But what the hell are fairy tales for? Why are they this kind of narcotizing fiction? Everyone likes a fairy tale. And if you don't, you're lying. You did once. So, two questions. What are fairy tales for, and why do so many of them focus on women? Oh, what are they for? They are to teach a moral lesson, especially originally. They literally came with them at the end. Right. It's also important to understand that they're not for the powerful. They were very much appropriated by the upper class through people like Perrault and the salons, where so many literary tales like Beauty and the Beast and Hans Christian Andersen, all of this kind of elevated the fairy tale, but they were not for these people. They were not stories for these people in the aristocracies. These were for the oppressed. And they resounded with women when they entered this upper echelon of society because women were very disenfranchised even when they got to live in the ivory tower. They're not so much concerned with what reality is. They may brush against it on their way to this ascent at the end of the story, to this happy ending. But they are not concerned with reality. They are concerned with hope and what they wish things to be. And they can be read as consolatory fables. Explain the suffering of ordinary people in a way that offers solace, compassion, and hope when society and reality offered little. I mean, it's just like something like like science fiction today. It's a way to look at what's going on in your society without talking about it. Right. And I think that there's much more science fiction to it than we let on because we get so caught up in the idea that all fairy tales have a happy ending. But we forget the gruesome bits. We forget the ordeals that these characters go through. Like Little Mermaid gets a happy ending, sort of. Kind of. Because... You know, the lesson to be learned is be selfless, sacrifice, and maybe something will work out for you, even if it looks like it hasn't. Even after you die, maybe you are dealing with an air fairy, and wouldn't that be great? Till a freaking baby cries. It's just a day. Damn it. Just a day. Every time? I don't think it's every time. I think you get some babies. I don't know how it works. There's an algorithm. An old description of fairy tales said, a true fairy tale must be a prophetic account of things, an ideal account an absolutely necessary account. A true writer of fairy tales sees into the future. It ties it in even more. Right? Because it's like, yeah, everything might suck right now, but you have to imagine a world where it doesn't. And I think in all the stories we've talked about, we have looked at women who 
longed for something and were told, no, you don't need that. You can't have that. Think of the Selkies staring out to sea, very much being held captive and wanting to escape and explore and go home. Think of the sirens who may have been punished by being turned into birds, or at least were looking for Persephone, who's certainly a woman who wanted to go home, or the Rasalka who were abandoned by their lovers or their loved ones or you know, kids who didn't have a chance, or the Little Mermaid who thought that she would survive out of the sea with the man that she fell in love with, who wanted a soul. The truth is society has never really wanted to give women those things, opportunities to explore and express themselves. And so these tales kind of work around the idea that society has a failure to recognize the enormity of the sacrifices it demands from women. And they also minimize the need to explore and tell us that our reward lies in acceptance. That's how you'll get the prince. And maybe even a soul. If you're lucky. But you still won't have a voice. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.